there really was a centuries-long tradition of thinking of music as fundamentally a kind of science. So if you go back to the old quadrivium, music is right up there with mathematics and astronomy, right? It's really sort of shocking and difficult to accept the fact that it might be more like the grammar of a language and that other languages might have a very different grammar. So there's this perception that some part of the rules of traditional Western music are no longer valid. But at the same time, there's real confusion about which rules those are. There's this feeling that we have to get rid of the irrelevant stuff, save only the core, expand our horizons, draw the lessons that we can draw from all these other ways of making music. But because so much musical understanding is implicit, this turns out to be a giant and enormously difficult problem. And I would say we are still struggling with that problem today, 130 years later. Math and music share their mystery and magic. Three notes played together make a chord whose properties could not be predicted from those of the separate notes. In the West, music theory and mathematics have common origins and a rich history of shaping and informing one another's field of inquiry. And curiously, Western composition has evolved over several hundred years in much the same way economies and agents in long-running simulations have becoming measurably more complex, encoding more and more environmental structure. But then, sometimes, collapses happen, and everything gets simpler. Music theorists, like the alchemists that came before them, are engaged in a centuries-long project of deciphering the invisible geometry of these relationships. What is the hidden grammar that connects the Beatles to Johann Sebastian Bach? And how similar is it to the hidden order disclosed by complex systems science? In other words, what makes for good music? And what does it have to do with the coherence of the natural world? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on Complexity, we speak with mathematician and composer Dmitry Tomasko at Princeton University, whose work provides a new rigor to the study of the Western canon and illuminates the shape of music, a hyperspatial object from which all works of Baroque, classical, romantic, modern jazz, and pop are all low-dimensional projections. In the first conversation for this podcast with MIDI keyboard accompaniment, we follow upon Gottfried Leibniz's assertion that music is the unconscious exercise of our mathematical powers. We explore how melodies and harmonies move through mathematical space in ways quite like the metamorphoses of living systems as they traverse evolutionary fitness landscapes. We examine the application of information theory to chord categorization and functional harmony, and we ask about the nature of randomness, the roles of parsimony and consilience in both art and life. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts. 
and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu engage. You can find the complete show notes for every episode with transcripts and links to cited works at complexity.simplecast.com. Thank you for listening. Dimitri Tomasco, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. This is a diversion from the standard fare on this show, but I think that it will nonetheless provide us with a kind of like rotating out of the plane of our normal conversations and we'll be able to take a perspective that hopefully is illuminated by and illuminates the normal episodes of complexity in an interesting way. I'll try to be as nerdy and statistical as I can. <laughs> Originally, I wanted David Krakauer to join us, and he's a little too busy for this call, but I know that the two of you have a long acquaintance, so I'll be sure to invoke him in this conversation. Okay. I guess where I would like to start in the mundane, before we take off into hyperspace here, with a bit of intellectual biography because you have charted an interesting and very nonlinear course in your career and the life of your mind. And I think that giving people a bit of a foundation in who you are as a person will be helpful to understanding you know, like what animates the questions that we're going to explore in today's show. So yeah, if you care to offer some background, let's start there. Okay. I was born in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a lovely little college town in Western Massachusetts. My parents were both professors, which is probably the root of a lot of my problems. <laughs> I grew up as a pretty standard math nerd. And when I went to college, I went to Harvard. When I went to college, I remember I was very influenced by an older friend of mine. His name is David Bogarts. And he was also, I think, kind of a math computer nerd. And I remember he had gone to college and majored in music. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, aren't you good at math and physics and stuff like that? Why are you majoring in music? And he said, well, you know, I realized I actually kind of like music, but I don't really love math and physics. And that really stuck with me. And I, it made me think, you know, in my ordinary life, I had never really needed to find the slope of a curve or any of that, whereas I really did. I loved music and that was something that I like to do just for my own sake. And I know a lot of people feel that way about math and science and, you know, that's great for them and they should become scientists. So I went off and I became a musician. I studied music there. This was maybe the very tail end of what I think of as uh, American academic atonality. So a lot of my professors wrote this very, very dissonant music that was really, really far from the music I'd grown up with. I'd grown up with like progressive jazz rock and new wave and Laurie Anderson and basically cerebral popular music. I really liked Bach. I really liked Debussy. And this was all music, you know, written in the wake of Schoenberg. And I encountered a composer there, Milton Babbitt, who became a mentor of mine. He's a very mathematical, very scientific guy. His music really, to me, sounds essentially random. I have a really hard time understanding what it's doing, even though if you look under the hood, it's filled with these mathematical patterns. So while I was there, John Cage came and gave these prestigious lectures called the Norton Lectures. I think you get paid a lot of money 
I remember a thousand people packed the room for his first lecture and he just read random words for like three hours. (laughs) You know, everybody left except for maybe 15, 25 people. You rarely see 980 people walking out of a lecture like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is this was an era where people really didn't think of music as something you did with the body. I didn't learn anything about jazz. Popular music was not really on the table. And we're talking late 80s, early 90s. So I would say there were institutions in America that were not like this. The um, very prestigious institutions sometimes tend to be the last to change. And so maybe the mindset that prevailed there was one that was more common elsewhere a decade earlier. So I then bounced off to philosophy. My dad was a philosopher, so I'd always kind of felt comfortable with philosophy. There was a professor at Harvard named Stanley Cavell, who was a former composer and who wrote a really cool book called Must We Mean What We Say that included a bunch of essays about sort of both sympathetic and critical essays about modern music. And so I gravitated toward him. He was another real mentor figure for me. And so to cut a long story short, by the end of my college career, I felt a little more comfortable expressing myself philosophically in words than in notes. I was fortunate enough to get a Rhodes Scholarship. I went off to study philosophy at Oxford, and I got kicked out. And, you know, I had a couple years in the wilderness wandering around. I became kind of a freelance teaching assistant back at Harvard. I lived in Somerville. I was basically a grad student, except I didn't have to go to any classes. After a few years of that, my father died tragically young, basically at the same age I am now. I applied to philosophy grad school, I applied to Yale Law School, and I applied to music composition grad school. And I got into music and I got into Yale. And I had this dark night of the soul where I tried to decide between becoming a lawyer and becoming a composer. And I feel good about that. I can tell you how I made the decision because I'm proud of it. But I went off to Berkeley. I started composing. I started doing music theory. Berkeley was still a kind of conservative place in terms of the styles of music that they accepted. But, you know, I was annoying enough to argue with that people mostly left me alone. And so then, you know, I was fortunate again and got a job at Princeton. They basically leave me alone. And I spend my time now about half and half between making music and thinking about how music works. So I'm a composer, but I'm also a a music theorist. And I'm definitely, I think, I'm pretty influenced by the same sorts of ideas that a lot of the more regular guests on your podcast are influenced by. Oh, no, there's no question. And one of the things I'm hoping to perform over the course of this conversation is just the webbing back to recognizing the through lines between your work and the work of so many other people at SFI. This is where I feel the real meat of this conversation comes into focus because I actually found you, before I realized that there was an SFI connection, I saw a talk that you had given on your work on music and geometry back in 2014, a talk titled The Shape of Music, and was just totally floored. I mean, unfortunately, we don't have your keyboard hooked up. We're going to have to interpolate musical samples in this, but you were talking and you were on the keys at the same time, and it was a beautiful instance of an augmented lecture, which I really enjoyed. And the lecture content was about this revelatory glimpse into this deep, unifying mathematical structure underneath 
the musical patterns that people enjoy and continue to invoke in composition and ways of visualizing these things. It had everything for me. It was synesthetic. It lived somewhere in this intertidal zone between music and mathematics and science. And and so I'd love to just give you an opportunity to talk about that, about that work. And from there, we can kind of maybe, once you've given us a foundation, the sort of history and current state of thinking about music and geometry, then as you sort of provide that exegesis, I hope that we can um, link out to other ideas from complex systems science and see, I'll sound things on you. I'll bounce them off you and see whether they stick. Yeah, I should say that I am at a disadvantage in the podcast format since a lot of what I have to say not only combines the languages of music and math, but also combines the visual system and the auditory system. So really, in some sense, it's a question of translating between what you hear and what you see. And of course, the podcast is essentially limited in that department. So your listeners are going to have to imagine really amazing visuals that completely clarify everything I'm talking about. And then they will go to the show notes and they will watch the talk that you gave at the 2020 SFI Musicology and Complexity Working Group and the other videos up there. So this will be more an appetizer, I guess, for that stuff. An hour-long commercial, really. The goal is to take it somewhere that your talks and writings may not necessarily have already gone. So let's aim for that. So I would say that if I had to back up, I would start with the fundamental problem, which is that musical knowledge is very often a kind of implicit knowledge. So I believe that musicians are, generally speaking, really smart people who know just an awful lot about music. I remember one of my piano teachers when I was a kid just describing Bach and Mozart as these incredible intellectuals who expressed their intellectuality by making music rather than by you know writing down theorems. What I would say, though, is that a lot of times this knowledge really isn't something that musicians can translate very easily into words. So a great musician understands music very deeply, but does not necessarily have the ability to express that knowledge in anything other than musical form. And that's really kind of a wonderful and cool thing. There's no reason to feel bad about that. But it does sometimes create problems or obstacles or difficulties. I would say if you wind the clock back to maybe 1890, 1900, something like that, you're coming off the tail end of 300 years of just glorious Western musical history, the tradition that starts about with Corelli and goes through Brahms. And it's just really an amazing cultural achievement. The people from that culture were quite aware of music as one of the profound contributions that their culture had made. At about 1900, there starts to become, first of all, encounters with non-Western music. So a gamelan visits Paris as part of the 1889 World's Fair and Debussy sees it and just has his mind blown. He thinks, wow, there's all these other kinds of musics that are out there. It's kind of a similar experience to Picasso encountering these African masks and just realizing that the aesthetic of European painting is just one small part of 
the world of possible art. So around 1900, there starts to get this widespread impression that the traditional rules of Western music they no longer have the authority that they once had. So some of them, it is gradually realized, are just these kind of local cultural conventions, like ways of dressing. They're not laws of nature. And here you have to understand, there really was a centuries-long tradition of thinking of music as fundamentally a kind of science. So if you go back to the old quadrivium, music is right up there with mathematics and astronomy, right? So the idea that music is somehow a scientific pursuit, this is a very deeply held belief in Western culture. And it's really sort of shocking and difficult to accept the fact that it might be more like the grammar of a language and that other languages might have a very different grammar. So to make a long story short, there's this perception that some part of the rules of traditional Western music are no longer valid. But at the same time, there's real confusion about which rules those are. So there's this feeling that we have to like get rid of the irrelevant stuff, save only the core, expand our horizons, draw the lessons that we can draw from all these other ways of making music. But because so much musical understanding is implicit, this turns out to be a giant and enormously difficult problem. And I would say, essentially, we are still struggling with that problem today, 130 years later. So you're definitely bringing themes that I want to focus on into focus here. And one of them is, again, that question that was explored in the working group, at least in the first session of the working group back in 2020 at SFI, on what features of the structure of music are indeed universal and which are specific to you know, various cultural contexts. And I see you dig into this extensively in your work. And for me, these questions of syntax and grammar are what connect what you're doing at least on one level, to what got me into complex system science in the first place, which was the work that David Krakauer was doing with Martin Nowak and Joshua Plotkin on the evolution of syntax and the evolution of uh, a sentence-based human communication format in the first place, and you know, thinking about it in mathematical terms. So a bit of historical background on, given that you gave this talk recently at SEMF on visualizing music's harmonic structure and the relationships in mathematical spaces of different dimensions. A little bit of context there historically, and then how your work builds on that, I think would be a good ramp into this. Okay. So I would say before I get there, I would like to give a little bit of context that I think is important. And one thing that I would say is there are sort of two questions that we can ask. And one question is about universal musical features. What features of music are truly shared by all forms of human music making? For me, I'm not super interested in that question because there's just a lot of different kinds of music out there. And if you include the music of the 20th and 21st century, you have music, you know, John Cage's music of silence. And so a true search for universals is going to leave you with something that's quite thin. I would say that a lot of my work is a little bit more specific in that the question that I'm most interested in 
is something more like what are the core features of Western music as we know it for the last 500 years? So music stretching back to the Renaissance and composers like Josquin and stretching forward to the present day and including popular music and jazz. And I do think there are some features of that music, structures that characterize that music that are not universal in the deep sense, but are widespread enough that they sort of constitute our musical world or some substantial portion of our shared heritage. And that's really the question that gets me going is sort of thinking about the very general grammatical structure of this particular branch of the world's music making. And it is one that the West has exported over the last 100 years in the sense that you can now go to all sorts of different countries. You can go to Korea, Japan, you know, India, and you will, especially in the popular realm, you will hear a kind of popular music that is playing with Western ideas. So that's the question that really animates me, sort of what constitutes Western tonality in the most abstract sense. And I would say that there are different ways of answering this question. And in a way, some of the sexiest and most interesting answer the question using geometry and by providing these sort of higher level models that allow you to visualize relationships. But at a more prosaic and more useful level, a lot of what I do is just thinking in a kind of very basic way about how to make precise the kinds of intuitions or the thoughts that lots of musicians have. I do think that one of my strengths is not being afraid to look dumb and, and so <laughs> being willing to sort of say things that on the one hand seem kind of obvious, but on the other hand, maybe because they're obvious or because they're wrongly dismissed as obvious, haven't got as much exploration as they might otherwise have. So one thing that we could talk about is just breaking down some of the basic features that distinguish tonal music from non-tonal music or some of the basic features that make Western music what it is. I definitely do want to do that because at some point in this conversation, I want to bring up the essay that you wrote on bebop and free jazz for transitions. Uh -huh. In the one conversation that we've had on this show that lingered on jazz, the conversation I had with Tyler Margitis, that's the anchor point here for me, You know where it turned out that there was a kind of deep mathematical structure, if not in the atonal experimentation of a free jazz ensemble, then at least in their ability to coordinate like a, you know, an emergent collective behavior, like the way that they moved through this space together. And so, yeah, again, this sort of like uh, the differences and samenesses here in all of that, I find very interesting. Yeah, sure. The place I think we should start is just with some really basic musical concepts. And so in my first book, which is called A Geometry of Music, I laid out what I consider five really basic components that tend to produce a sense of tonality, which for many, but not you know all listeners, corresponds to pleasingness. So it's probably useful to go through those properties, and that will sort of set the stage for how geometry enters the picture, okay? So the first of the properties has to do with 
just the difference between consonants and dissonance. So it's just sort of a basic fact about human beings that we tend to find certain sounds pleasing and certain sounds less pleasing. Some maybe pleasing and not pleasing. This is one of the qualities, one of the adjective pairs we use to describe it, but restful and active is another one. And so the most obvious example is the octave, which is typically considered the most restful and stable of the possible combinations of notes you can make, followed by the perfect fifth, and then the major third. And then you can put these things together in various ways. You can add a fifth and a major third to get what we call a major triad, or you can do that same structure upside down to get a minor triad. You can build out a whole harmonic vocabulary you know, adding together different sounds and different musical styles sort of demarcate different regions of this space of sounds as their sort of basic vocabulary. As a general rule, Western music has evolved toward increasing complexity. So it started with fairly sort of simple sounds. So that's a kind of early medievalish sound. And then harmony got richer and richer and richer and richer. And this eventually led jazz on the one hand, which uses very complex harmonies all the time, but also atonality, which uses very dissonant harmonies. So if you want, you can make music out of sounds like this. Right. And a huge amount of 20th century music has been devoted to exploring the potential in those kinds of dissonant sounds. So our first property that is just this sliding scale between what we might call the restful, soothing, pleasing sounds and the more energetic, dissonant, aggressive sounds. I think it's very important not to think of this as a moral continuum. <laughs> All of these sounds are great. They all have musical uses. Maybe a way to think of it is the difference between sweet food and really spicy food, right? So there are people who love to eat super spicy food, even though it causes them pain and makes them sweat and, you know, throw themselves on the floor. And then everybody likes a little bit of spiciness, but different people kind of get off the boat at different points in the chili pepper continuum. Yeah. And Again, I don't want to jump ahead too far ahead in our conversation, but mathematizing these relationships and then the melodic paths that are taken through harmonic spaces in music as you articulate them and others, it has me wonder about things like activation energies and chemical reactions and the distances between points on evolutionary fitness landscapes that certain trajectories are paths that seem theoretically possible in the way that it's you know theoretically possible for information to escape a black hole it's not practically viable you know and so you've demonstrated some caution in your statements already in this call about trying to avoid this sort of mystical pre-modern music as science kind of transcendental <laughs> thing but it is curious to me that there may be reasons why, again, there's like, in spite of the notable differences between the distinct musical grammars that have evolved around the world, the different aesthetics, that there may still be, even so, a set of deeper underlying unities. 
Right. Well, that's the hope. And I think there's some truth to that. I just want to say, like, no one should ever say the words practically viable to a musician, right? This is <laughs> especially someone who writes string quartets in the 21st century, right? Like, that is definitely not a practically viable enterprise. And making art in the world of Trump is a pretty quixotic project. And I'm a big defender of people following their own mysterious and beautiful and strange paths. One of my favorite composers is a musician named Conlon Nancaro, who wrote all this sort of wonderfully crazy music for the player piano in Mexico City in the 50s and 60s. And that music is extreme. It is weird. You know, probably 90% of the people who hear it, it sounds like a player piano that's out of control and rolling down a hill or something like that. And you know, that is really extremely non-practically viable music. And yet I find an enormous beauty and also in the thought that someone would dedicate their entire life to this really quixotic quest. So there's sort of two poles. On the one hand, some features of music may be rooted in features of our biology. And so you depart from them at your own risk. On the other hand, I really am a believer in the imagination and in what I guess you could call perversity, right? There's a lot of what gets people excited is in various ways unnatural. And I'm a big supporter in not trying to constrain the imagination. So this is something I struggle with. I'm always trying to, on the one hand, be faithful to my like scientific interest, my theoretical interest, my trying to figure out how do the, these, these different building blocks of musical structure, how do they fit together. On the other hand, I don't really want to be contributing to a kind of police force mentality or some kind of oppression, right? And this is very tricky. It's a very tricky balance to draw. And I do think about, you know, right now we're in an era of sexual liberation and people are doing all sorts of stuff that was considered unnatural and frowned upon 70 years ago. And we've learned, you know, Nobody gets hurt as long as you let people follow their bliss and do what they want. The age of the internet has created these niches for people who like very strange music, very strange food, very strange hearts of all sorts. And so I am a big believer in that. I think the way I solve this dilemma for myself is I'm a believer in consequences. So if you want to write totally nasty, strange music with like the weirdest harmonies, I am your biggest backer. But if you then complain, that only a small number of people like your music, that's maybe where I start to get off the boat, right? So <laughs> you do sometimes have this, you know, maybe I think someone like Arnold Schoenberg, he was quite aware that he was a great, great composer, but he would often complain about how few people liked his incredibly dissonant and gnarly music. And that I find a little bit, that that is maybe a place where I can help and say, look, if you're dedicated to writing music with the nastiest sounds you can think of, then you have to know that that's probably going to have some consequences in terms of your record sales. And as long as you're aware of those consequences and prepared to pay the price, then all power to you. So actually, you know, there's a talk I'll try to dig up and link to in the show notes, an interview with Murray Gilman about the challenge of funding fundamental theoretical science, like the kind that is practiced at SFI, and how truly novel work is often commercially invisible. This is something that we talked about with Lauren Klein when we had her on the show to talk about bringing techniques from the digital humanities to bear on surfacing invisible labor 
in history, a data feminism approach, and how that's why you know this show is itself kind of peculiar in that it is a vehicle for the diffusion of work that, in some respects, can only be understood in retrospect in history in terms of its significance. You know, like Sid Redner's work on papers that go unrecognized for 50 years, and then suddenly there's a bloom of citations. This is like it's recognized as formative work for an emergent discipline that was ahead of its time. And so, yeah, I hear you that one way to think about this might be that there is this extremely intricate landscape of possibility to explore, whether in the arts or in the sciences. And there are a lot of nasty, difficult, hard-to-climb roads on that landscape. And there may be great reward on some of those roads, but it's harder to find resources to support a pilgrimage to a destination that cannot be seen you know, along a treacherous pathway. And in that rate, that gives us a way to kind of fold this back into, again, the way that you think about the geometry of harmonic spaces and of the paths that music can take through those spaces. I know you're trying to get me back on track, but this is the place where I, <laughs> I have to say that Murray Gelman was mean to me when I visited SFI oh. the first time, somewhere around 2009. He said, isn't all this musical geometry just group theory that I rediscovered? And I said, no, it really isn't. I feel that for the record, it's important to get that down there. Okay, so we're talking about what are these like basic properties that contribute to musical pleasure. One of them is just consonance and dissonance and the intrinsic pleasure we take in some sounds and intrinsic tension we hear in other sounds and essentially balancing those, you know, in an interesting way. Another very simple one, and here we go back to me not being afraid to say dumb things, is what I call conjunct melodic motion. So a lot of times when we make a melody, we tend to move around by small distances on the key. Right? So that is a melody, whereas something like, that's not so melodic, right? And so... You know, a lot of people have written music that hops all around the keyboard all the time, but that they are sort of deliberately thwarting the melodic impulse. Another feature, and by the way, if listeners are interested, they can type what makes music sound good into Google and maybe add my name and you'll find some cool audio demonstrations that, you know, you can play around with to explore these features. Another feature that I talk about as being particularly important is what I call harmonic consistency. So this is, let's just say a chord is a collection of notes that happen at one time in music. And in a lot of musical styles, chords tend to sound similar to one another. So all of these chords are in some sense the same. They're transformations of each other, we could say. Now, other musical styles use very different kinds of harmony. This kind of thing. Maybe you have complex styles like jazz. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe you have very atonal styles. That these, by the way, your listeners need to know I'm playing with one hand. So uh, for 
because of how my keyboard is. So I'm a little bit, I have one hand tied my, behind my back, literally. What you don't tend to find is music that mixes these different sound worlds kind of indiscriminately. So, you know, something like... That almost sounds funny or sounds kind of pointless, right? So harmonic consistency is you use a collection of chords that somehow feel like they belong together. And there's a few more of these. If you go to the website, if you want to explore, you can go and figure them out. I don't think I'm going to go through all of them here. But the point is just these dumb little properties, they're actually enough to set up a math problem because it turns out that it's not exactly automatic, that on the one hand, you can make little melodies that move around by short distances, and at the same time, these melodies combine to make a sequence of harmonies that sound similar. That's enough to make a math problem and to actually ask the question, well, what are the conditions under which we can have these properties that make music sound pleasing simultaneously? And there it turns out that the answer to the question involves geometry in a kind of essential and surprising way and hooks into some of these deep themes of 20th century science, which involve, I would say, geometrizing knowledge of various sorts. Yeah. In fact, in, I like the way that uh, you wrapped up a piece that you wrote called This Mathematical Song of the Emotions, which we'll link to. You said, music can be, as Leibniz said, the unconscious exercise of our mathematical power is an uncanny mixture of logic and emotion. And again, so that's about explicating what you said, you know, the implicit knowledge, the embodied knowledge of music. And so here again, like I want to make sure that we linger and unpack this for people that what you've done in your work over the last, at least the last 15 years, is show how musical harmonic structure looks for people that are familiar with this podcast a lot like what we were talking about with Brandon Ogbunu a couple episodes ago when he was talking about John Maynard Smith's protein space and the paths through random letter strings and how you can find these paths that are actually, you know, maybe practically viable isn't the right way to talk about it for, you know, among musicians, but like paths that are functionally related and therefore there are bridges from one part of this abstract space to another part of the abstract space that emerge from this naturally. You know, I'd love to hear you talk about the way that you're building on like previous efforts like the circle of fifths, for instance, in your work to provide a robust approach to visualizing these high dimensional spaces. Okay. So I think one thing we can say is that one of the deep concepts of 20th century thinking is the concept of a configuration space. And this is the idea that you have some geometry, some space where a point doesn't represent, say, a planet flying around in a solar system. It doesn't represent an animal moving through space. Instead, a point represents a complex configuration. So you use the word fitness landscape. What is a fitness landscape? Well, 
Fitness landscape is a term we use to refer to a configuration of properties that jointly make up our fitness or our ability to reproduce. So the concept of fitness landscape is fundamentally a concept of a configuration space. Configuration spaces play a huge role in 20th century physics. The quantum mechanics is sort of very naturally formulated in terms of these things. So in music, what this means is that we think of a configuration space as a space whose points represent collections of notes. So instead of thinking of a C major chord as three keys being held on the piano, we think of it as a location in the space of all possible chords. Okay, and so then when we're moving from one chord to another, we're taking a path through a configuration space, which is essentially, if you're thinking about fitness landscapes, this is kind of like evolving from one state, one organism to a, another. Okay, so I would say one thing I did is just take this very common concept of the fitness landscape and just sort of translate it into music. Now, the thing that's interesting in this work, the reason people like to do this is it turns out that fitness landscapes have complex geometrical features. And when we're talking about fitness, we're saying, well, certain combinations of properties really make you reproduce very well. And so they're like the top of a mountain in a fitness landscape. In other situations, the configuration space has sort of interesting non-Euclidean properties. And that's what we find in music. It turns out that when you, you get serious and you model the geometries that represent common musical objects like three note chords or two note chords, you end up with these very cool geometrical spaces. The easiest example is that the space of two note chords, the space you can play with two fingers on a keyboard, if you think of them as chords in a very natural musical way, this space is a kind of Mobius strip, furthermore, which has a singularities at its boundary. And these spaces, they sound very cool. They use relatively recent mathematics, but they are very common spaces. They're the geometries that arise when you're modeling unordered objects. They're the geometries that arise if you're modeling wallpaper and motion along a wallpaper. So what's interesting here is there's a package of ideas all sort of surrounding the notion of a configuration space that have allowed us to think about the interesting mathematics of things like wallpaper or basket weaving patterns or tiling patterns that just sort of applies very naturally to music. And so, yes, you can think of musicians as moving around in these higher dimensional configuration spaces, which are sort of analogous to fitness landscapes and finding their way around these spaces. Musicians intuit this knowledge, usually in terms of fingers on a keyboard or on some other instrument. Uh, we can now, given where we are, intellectual history, we can translate that knowledge into all sorts of other forms. So I wanted to double back for just a moment. And you know, one thing I really want to explore with you is, as you mentioned earlier, that there has been this increasing complexity in the harmonic palette of Western composers over the last several hundred years. This is something that several people discussed in the 2020 SFI working group video series that we'll link to. So there's a point, and this is a point that you mention, you know, in this transition to 20th century work and the getting to a point where we've got people like Mahler that are really branching out and 
exploring this in unprecedented ways. And then things flip and then you get, like you said, you get all of this atonality, you get Schoenberg, you get free jazz, you kind of compare that to stuff like Jackson Pollock in the visual arts. And I've heard musicologists talk about how they saw a relationship between that shift in the focus of artists with respect to, and we brought this up in the Tyler Margitas episode, it seems kind of synchronous with challenges to the narrative of a kind of ongoing march of progress that was presented by the world wars and the awakening of Western society to nonlinear effects in complex systems and you know the cybernetics and all of this stuff. I'm being very sort of hand-wavy here. It got interesting for me because you have this presentation Yes, but could the Martians understand Bach on syntax and epistemology? And elsewhere, also, in talking about your mentor, Milton Babbitt, you say that following the relationships in a Babbitt composition might be compared to attempting to count the cards in three simultaneous games of bridge all played in less than 30 seconds. Babbitt's music is poetry written in a language that no human can understand. It is invisible architecture. The relationships are out there in the objective world, but we cannot apprehend them. And so I guess what I'm trying to do here is elicit your thoughts on whether the relationship between tonality and atonality or between signal and noise, whether that distinction really is a kind of like ontological distinction. Another way to think about this in complex systems kind of language is whether randomness really is a thing or whether it is merely contingent on the observer. Because we know from work like the physical limits of communication in 1999 that came out of SFI that optimally encoded alien communication would be indistinguishable from black body radiation, for instance. And so, you know, is the movement into atonality and sort of off of the playing board of these more ordered musical spaces that you're exploring in much of your work, is that really a shift in kind or are we really doing what we have always been doing, which is pushing the frontier of tonal exploration into areas that for which we lack the appropriate sort of Bayesian priors to the conditioning yeah. to recognize a pattern? Okay, well, th- there's a lot in what you just said. We could probably teach an entire graduate seminar <laughs> at Princeton you know, with one class on each of your sentences. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's all right. No, it's great. I'm going to maybe go backwards a little bit. And okay, you know, you picked one of my favorite quotes, that Babbitt quote that I wrote is one of the favorite sort of couple sentences I've written. First thing I want to say is there's no such thing as atonality. There are many different things that are atonality, right? And the atonality of free jazz is really, really, really different from the atonality of Milton Babbitt. And one thing I would like to do is get people to understand the similarity between maybe Schoenberg's early music and free jazz, because those seem somewhat similar to me. I would say that Milton Babbitt's version of atonality sort of is the very apotheosis of a very deep feature of a certain strand of thinking about music in the West. And that is a fear of the human and a fear of the body 
and a fear of just how simple music can be. So there's this long trend. I think it probably goes back to Kant. Maybe, you know, a historian of philosophy could probably trace it back further. But there is a real trend, and it really comes up in music, of trying to take all the fun out of it one way or another and to turn it into a purely cerebral exercise of our minds. And the fact is, a lot of what makes music really powerful and enjoyable is kind of animalistic and non-cerebral. We really like to hear just like that a bass drum beating regularly and to move our bodies in time with the music. And we really just love relatively simple, repetitive musical structures. One of my favorite examples, song I talk about a lot is Helpless by Neil Young. Just got a melody with basically three notes and just three chords, and it just repeats over and over. And you know, it's a really great song. And so what I would say is there is a fundamental philosophical fear of music out there and a tendency to valorize those features of music that look the most like math and to downgrade those features that look like dancing or look that are sweaty. You know what I mean? And so the thing about Beethoven and Bach and Mahler and all those guys is they've got the sweat and they've got the expression and they've got the drama and the screaming and all of this like really earthy human stuff. And they also have the math. And that's why this music stays with us. And that's also true of Charlie Parker and Art Tatum and John Coltrane. And it's also true of the Beatles. And it's true of a lot of the electronic dance music you can hear now. So I think the great music always has this math quality and this athletics quality. Milton Babbitt's music is maybe the very apogee of a centuries-long tradition of asking what happens if we strip away all of the athletics, all the sweat and all the sport out of music, and we try to make something that is as much like math as possible. And in fact, the technical procedure of composing the way Milton Babbitt composed is really very much like Sudoku, only instead of nine numbers, it's you use 12. But if you want to know what he was doing, he was essentially doing incredibly complicated Sudoku puzzles and then translating them into sound with no regard whatsoever for whether people found those sounds to be intrinsically pleasurable, because that's this animalistic and sweaty and, for him, irrelevant question. So, you know, you see now why I loathe to associate that with free jazz, right? Free jazz can be very much about the body, very spontaneous, very sweaty, very, you know, two people get together and let's just play music without any preconceptions. That can be what free jazz is. And so maybe on the surface, they're both dissonant, they're both atonal, but they're coming from very different places. I would say that the stuff I'm interested in is coming up with ways of thinking about the cerebral quality in music that are maybe a little bit demystifying. So yeah, there is this structure in Bach and Beethoven. It's there. It's cool. It contributes value to the music, but it's not so amazing and so special that we have to let it sort of eclipse all the other wonderful features about that music. So paradoxically, understanding those aspects even better maybe can help us demystify them a little bit and put them along on the shelf alongside other musical values that are less cerebral but equally important. 
So thank you. I, maybe what I'd like to do is just actually take a tiny slice of that question out of that giant manifold of possible questions. And just, again, to cite talks that I've seen David Krakauer give on his work to find a general theory of intelligence. And, you know, he's talking about the algorithms that someone might employ to solve a Rubik's cube, for instance, as, you know, an actual sort of concrete physical instantiation of all of this conversation about abstract mathematical hyperspaces, that this is about finding a short path from one point to another through these spaces. So I'm curious if you think that the increasing harmonic complexity of Western music suggests that we are collectively getting smarter about identifying the structures in this musical hyperspace, better at pattern recognition generally, due to an expansion of the training data. You know, and when people say, oh, it's an acquired taste, yeah. the world that we live in now, again, to call on, you know, Stuart Kaufman and his phrase, the adjacent possible, which comes up in the show a lot, as I'm sure you can imagine, that the adjacent possible in a world of so many different technologies and languages and designed and undesigned affordances that possibility space is much greater. And so there's a pressure on the individual and collective intellect to have you know, the vocabulary and syntax to explore these spaces. And so it seems, again, that both in the ways that we've already interrogated, you know, tonal, quote unquote, and atonal, quote unquote, music both evolve as an instance of this much more general process of the evolution of intelligence broadly. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the topics I want to circle around to is how experimentation manifests itself differently across the different arts. So you talk about Pollock versus, you know, Cecil Taylor or someone like that. So I want to come back to that because it turns out that the different arts, I think, are cognitively situated in different ways. And maybe as a sort of corollary to that, there's also a technological component to how experimentation manifests itself. So if you think about what happened to drama broadly construed, well, movies transformed it, right? Because they gave a possibility that wasn't present prior to 1900 or so, right? Even something as simple as changes in printing technology made the comic book possible somewhere around 1900. And so suddenly we have that as a new art form. In music, the gigantic technological change that really changes everything is the invention of recording technology somewhere around 1920s. It's basically the same thing as the movies, but for sound. So that is really a radical change here in the following sense. Prior to 1900, if you wanted your music to be remembered, there was one way to do it, and that was to write it down. Okay. And so what that meant is people would not remember the specific way in which you sang a melodic line. They would not remember all of the things that couldn't be written down. They would remember your notes and rhythms. And so within that technological regime, you can see a kind of increasing complexity over time. But it's important to remember that there is a back and forth. I think of it a little bit like the ecological parable of, you know, the wolves and the rabbits, right? Mm. So the rabbits get more populous and then that's more food for the wolves. So you get more wolves and that makes less rabbits and then the wolves die off, right? So the topic of complexity exhibits something of that dynamic where you've got the listeners and the composers and the composers are always wanting to get more complex and do stuff that's more interesting for them. 
and the listeners are willing to go with them up to a point, but eventually the composers go too far and someone else, a new style shows up that's simpler and grabs people's attention. So you have people like Johann Strauss, who's writing waltzes that are much simpler than the music of Wagner. You have Satie, who's deliberately exploring simplicity. Historically, there's a repeated trend of people getting mileage out of new and simple kinds of music. You know, the minimalists, Terry Riley, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, the minimalists filled this role within the realm of notated composition in the 20th century. The thing that happens in the 20th century alongside that is recording technology suddenly allows everyone to bypass writing things down. You can bypass the conservatory, which was you went to the conservatory and they told you how to write down music. And along the way, they indoctrinated you with all sorts of other aesthetic prejudices. So suddenly, anyone who can get time in the recording studio can make their music, can sell music, can make their music remembered. Furthermore, the recording studio is able to capture all those nuances of performance that were lost in notation. So the precise way in which Louis Armstrong sings suddenly becomes, you know, part of his musical personality, right? So this is a force that really just totally transforms our perception of music and our relation to music. And it also totally is a giant force toward vernacular styles and is a force of simplification. And also suddenly it puts classical composers in competition with vernacular musicians in a way they never were before, right? Because suddenly people have a choice about do you buy yet another recording of Beethoven's Fifth or do you buy the latest Benny Goodman album or whatever. And so I think you can say that Western culture has essentially voted with its feet for non-notated music in the sense that the vast majority of music that is now consumed, the most popular styles of music have their roots one way or another in some kind of vernacular tradition, folk music, rock music, jazz, that kind of thing. May I just interrupt to ask you your thoughts on, you know, the work of people, I don't know if you're familiar with like Keith McMillan of McMillan Instruments, but you know, his entire career in designing new musical software and hardware has been to try and unify those two domains. If you are a musician and you're listening to the show, you may be familiar with MPE, which is this new format that allows several more dimensions of expressivity into the transcription of a musical performance in MIDI, you know, into this digital recording format that doesn't actually capture the music in the sense that you're talking about musical recording, but creates in a digital record nonetheless. And now we have all of these additional dimensions to it. And so even the musically illiterate can perform on a digital keyboard now and leave a record that captures all of that vernacular stuff that can then also be played back on different instruments or by different musicians in a way that preserves all of that stuff. And so it seems like there's a kind of a dialectic going on here and that we're on the cusp of a synthesis. And maybe that's, I don't mean to distract you, but I feel like that's interesting to me, the way that these things might be swirling back together. Yeah. Well, sure. I'm super interested in that. I actually do a lot of programming myself. Some of the projects I'm most proud of involve taking these complex theoretical spaces and making them into something like a video game or a musical instrument or maybe halfway between those. And actually, when I was out at SFI, I did a concert that involved some of this work. 
so yeah, I mean, the idea that maybe instead of a piece of music, you create an environment, a software environment, and then your audience, instead of passively listening to your piece of music, they navigate paths through your environment, like playing a video game, but instead of accumulating points, they make cool sounds. This is, I think, an incredibly, incredibly interesting opportunity, this very 21st century way to think about music. If we're talking about new musical instruments, I think the big one that I would mention is what's called the Digital Audio Workstation, or the DAW, as we call it in music land. These are software programs like Pro Tools or Logic, or there's a million of them. And basically what they are is they are a software generalization of multi-track recording tape. They are essentially a form of notation that allows you to represent music visually, only instead of like little dots on a musical staff that represent notes, you actually have little pictures that represent, they can represent notes, but they can also represent actual recordings, found sounds, the sound of a cat yowling, whatever you record, you can put in there and then you can manipulate them visually and create music in that way. And I think it's very, very important for academic musicians, for teachers such as myself, to recognize that the DAW is a kind of notation system. And rather than prioritizing, I mean, it's great to learn how to read music. I'm a big supporter of reading traditional musical notation, but there's a tendency to sort of valorize that particular form of notation because it happens to be centuries old, whereas the DAW is a 21st century form of notation that is the native language for a whole generation of musicians. And it itself is sort of creates opportunities that traditional notation. I mean, that's the like 800 pound gorilla in terms of all. I mean, I make weird little software instruments that and people who are out on the front lines redesigning piano keyboards that's a niche activity, but like the digital audio workstation, you've got tens or hundreds of thousands of users every day, sort of. And then that representation really is something very special and something very new. And it's one reason why you hear so much complicated popular music now, right? Is you can create these incredibly elaborate textures and loops and patterns and just, or non-repeating patterns, just by dragging around little pictures of sounds on your DAW, and it's limited only by the amount of time you're willing to put into it. So this may be a good place to touch back on you know, your essay on the end of jazz and the way that you argue in this, I liked this, that you argue that bebop is in some ways kindred to classical music precisely because of its intentional inaccessibility, its emphasis on the learned ear and the learned instrumentalist, the effort required to perform and to appreciate this music critically, and that there is a, a pretty significant change that's been you know discussed widely about exactly what you're talking about, about the fact that a child can learn to use one of these digital audio workstations on an iPad and when I think about this stuff, it reminds me of the conversation I had with, I bring this up all the time. I'm sorry, folks who are regular listeners of the show, but episode 29, when I was talking with David Krakauer about mass extinctions and how, you know, sometimes the systems get so, to kind of speak casually about this, so Baroque, an ecosystem is full of all of these very fragile interdependencies. 
and subject to endogenous shocks just through the surprises created by a system like that. You know, you think about like the nature of technology and how innovation always outpaces regulation. And so, you know, when we talk about, you know, the proliferation of when you mention these moments, like with, I think you said with Strauss, that we kind of reach this crescendo <laughs> of music, of harmonic complexity, and then things pull back and become simple again, that there are these like waves that remind me of the talk that Simon DeDeo gave at SFI a few years ago on a very similar process going on in science itself, where every 150 years or so, we see this rise and fall of confidence that there will be a vast unifying consilient theory of everything into which we can sweep all of these seemingly disparate domains of scientific knowledge. And then we have a moment where like the scale of the information available to us outpaces our ability to make sense of it. And things collapse back into a conceit of pluralism or like a, I like think about the way that the rhetoric around the unification of the World Wide web in the nineties has been tempered by the challenges wrought by connecting everything to everything else, you know? And so I'm curious whether you find these kinds of analogies I'm making to hold any water and then what it means in terms of understanding the evolution of composition in the West and, you know, what, yeah, yeah the processes that kind of drive that. Well, I, I'm going to start by talking about bebop. So I think that article you're quoting is maybe the first or second thing I ever published. So it's been a long time since I've, thought about that. So Bebop is one of those great examples of the wolves and the rabbits, right? Where Bebop is the place where jazz goes from being the music, a kind of popular music, to being an elite taste. And, you know, I love that music. I really very deeply respond to that music. I think in a thousand years, people will remember that music the way we remember Bach and Beethoven. So I'm a big believer in it. At the same time, it does take a little bit of uh, work to be able to figure it out. There is a great book that I just went and got off my shelf called Bebop, A Social and Musical History by Scott DeVoe. And he makes the case, he says, Bebop was valorized by people like Allen Ginsberg as this deliberately lawless, incredibly free sort of music. But that's not really the way to think about it. He said, you have to understand that the people who made this music were really consummate professionals, unbelievably talented musicians who practiced all the time. And he sets this music in the context of Jim Crow and the incredible kind of oppression of African Americans in the 20th century and before and after, of course. And he says, look, imagine you are like a really smart intellectual African American from Kansas in born in 1920. What are your choices? Well, your choices are kind of doctor, lawyer, school teacher, and musician, right? And I actually think that is something you could say about classical music more generally. Suppose you're a math guy and you're born in 1710, you know, well, you might become a math professor, but there's no computer programmer jobs. There's no theoretical biology jobs. You know, there's not even statistician or data scientist or accountant or all these jobs that are an outlet for the people who love math and patterns and stuff like that. They're just gone. And so maybe there's one math professor job, but there's a hell of a lot of musician jobs, right? Because People need music. And, you know, at that time, just pay someone to write some new music rather than 
pay for a copy of a Corelli book. It's actually easier just to grab a musician out of the local orphanage, pay them to write some new music than to actually pay for to copy some earlier music. So I think what I'm getting to is throughout history and all the way up, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, music was playing this vital function as being an outlet for a certain sort of quantitative activity. And the thing is, it's not clear that it needs to play that role anymore because all of those people who really love math and patterns can just go become data scientists or theoretical biologists or whatever. So I remember a charming and slightly, well, I don't want to say heartbreaking, I heart to heart with one of my students 15 years ago. And he said, you know, I love music and I love computer programming and I can get paid really well to do one of those things. And now he works at Google. And I think the other part of this that I would sort of just put on the table is if you spend all your day doing, let's just call it math, but you know, math broadly construed and running algorithms and writing programs and doing all that cerebral pattern kind of stuff, when you come home at the end of the day, what kind of music do you want to listen to? Do you want to listen to the very mathy music of Bach or Charlie Parker or do you want to listen to something that that is really nothing at all like what you do at work and has four on the floor, you know, the bass drum? So <laughs> you're sort of asking me to comment on this big picture stuff about how we're all getting smarter. I basically agree with that. The Flynn effect and whatnot. We're all getting more quantitative. I basically agree with that. We all spend all our days on computers. And so then you're asking me, what does this mean for music? And it would be nice if the story was, well, our music is getting smarter and more complex. But I actually think in some ways, the pressure goes in the other direction. And suddenly, the fact that we all spend our days doing math in front of a computer means that at the end of work, when it's time to relax, we might prefer a kind of music that is maybe more balanced toward the drama, more balanced toward the emotional, more directly accessible. And again, I'm okay with that. I'm not going to fall into the trap of wishing that everybody practiced their piano for an hour a day and played Bach fugues when they came home from work, because that's really not how I feel. I think there's going to be markets, there's going to be cultures that support people who make cerebral music. But I think there are some good reasons for thinking that maybe cerebral music isn't going to play the culturally central role that it did in, you know, Vienna in 1810 or something like that. Interesting. Because this episode has given me the opportunity to be, in general, kind of so much more casual than I would ordinarily be on the show, I want to make sure that we pay the piper and that we wrap this with an opportunity to discuss a specific paper that you co-authored with uh, Nori Jacoby and Naftali Tishby on an information-theoretic approach to chord categorization and functional harmony. Because at SFI, we recently launched this program in the digital humanities and, and you know, the bringing computational approaches to bear on cultural corpora. And here you propose that, that harmonic theory should be evaluated by at least two criteria. Accuracy, as you say in the abstract, how well the theory describes the musical surface and complexity, the efficiency of the theory, according to Occam's razor. And again, to call on Simon DeDeo and this piece I discussed with him on the show back in episode 72 that he co-authored with Zachary Wojtowicz. And they used 
a Bayesian approach and they broke down how people think about simple explanations and what constitutes the different heuristics that different people apply to considering whether something is or is not a satisfying explanation. And they talk about consilience versus parsimony. You know, elsewhere, David Krakauer has written, he wrote a piece at Aeon about the relationship between fundamental theory and large predictive models, you know, the relationship between brains and algorithms in science, you know, prediction and understanding. And so this is something that comes up in your work. And I'd love to just give you one more opportunity to talk about how these big complex systems ideas are actually being applied by you and your co-authors in examining, comparing, evaluating different music theoretical approaches and then actually measuring them against one another. Yeah. What kind of, uh, yeah, how you're bringing this all in with like a formal okay. quantitative approach. Right. This actually connects to some work that I'm currently doing with Mark Newman, a great physicist who is very closely associated with SFI. So I would say one of the things that's really interesting about music is on the one hand, it's got all this math quantitative stuff. It's like the one art that that STEM fetishists really like. On the other hand, it really is a culture unto itself. And I would say that the incorporation of basic scientific ways of thinking and basic scientific methodology, that is something that is still extremely controversial within music theory. Like, you don't really need a license to go have a theory about music. You can just sort of hang a shingle out, get some students. Maybe if you have an academic job, you can just say, here's how I think music works. And so there's not really a scientific mindset or a culture of debate or critique. So one of the projects that I've been engaged in over the last 20 years or so is, you know, <laughs> big data is not quite the word. I'd call it little data or something is assembling actual digitized musical scores, analyzing them, and then kind of doing baby statistics on the analysis to try to understand things like how did the tonal language of Corelli and Bach, how did that evolve? When did that happen? Or if you look at, there are many different ways of explaining how the music of the 17th and 18th century works harmonically, right? And so actually using information theory to evaluate these different kinds of theories. So the paper you mentioned with Jacoby and Tishby, we started with my hand analysis of a bunch of different kinds of music. And the language I use is a very common language where we have basically like 45 different chord symbols that describe all these different kinds of chords. And then we tried to squeeze that information into a smaller number of categories using Tijby's notion of the information bottleneck. And it turned out that when you squeeze it into a small number of categories, you get something that's recognizable. You get the categories of tonic, dominant, and subdominant, which have governed music theory for hundreds of years since Remo and then Riemann after him. And so what's interesting about that is those categories are usually thought to be psychological categories, like they describe chords that sound similar, but the machine doesn't know anything about sounding similar. It just knows about sort of coming up with the most parsimonious information, theoretical compression of a signal. And it's really cool. It shows that these theories are actually, you know, they're hooking into something that's not just psychological, but is also has to do with information theory. So the work I'm doing with Mark Newman, in many ways, sort of returns to that theme. And what we have done is Mark is the scientist, 
he built a hidden Markov model that basically we can feed it in the notes of the Bach chorales in this case. So these are 371 little Lutheran hymns that are kind of like the epicenter of music theory pedagogy, the sort of a distillation of the core principles of tonal theory. And they're very easy to analyze. So we can feed it in the notes and then we just say, okay, come up with some probability distributions that are most likely to produce these notes. And it comes up with basically major, minor, and diminished chords. And then we say, okay, come up with some more probability distributions that compress your chords into two categories. And it comes up with major and minor keys. And essentially, it analyzes music pretty much the way a human does. And it's a good example of what's called interpretable machine learning. And it basically shows you that all these sort of theories that musicians have proposed over the years, they're really like very solidly grounded in actual regularities that are present in the music. So that's really cool. It also turns out that we can like massage the data a little, translate it into a more recognizable human form. And without telling the computer too much about the underlying structure of the music, we can get it to reproduce some very subtle, seemingly arbitrary features of human judgment about how this music works. So it might treat one in the same collection of notes. In some case, it would say, well, that is a harmony. In other cases, it would say, ah, that's not a harmony. That's just a collection of melodic passing tones. And it does this essentially in the same way that an expert human being would do this kind of reproducing features that you would never believe that a machine could do. So this is an example of a place where science and machine learning and the kind of stuff that normally happens at SFI can really intersect with the meat and potatoes of music education and also music scholarship. So that's a whole other sort of aspect of exciting work that's going on that requires bringing the two cultures together and getting them to speak each other's language in an interesting way. Well, Dimitri, you've managed to land the flirtation that we've been engaged in here for like the last hour and a half with this question that I, I'd like to end it with this. And and maybe this is the way to to leave people appropriately bewildered and awestruck as I feel contemplating this. You say in your Boston Review essay on the sound of philosophy about Babbitt and John Cage, Mathematics, for all its beauty, is about discovering facts and establishing truths, while music, despite its complexity, is about moving people through the medium of sound. And yet, when you're talking about finding these robust statistical relationships whereby these harmonic properties appear to like spill out from machines that have no ears and have never listened to music, and you're hinting at the possibility of actually being able to generate a competent machine music critic kind of like a you know the you know the pitchfork people are about to have their Gary Kasparov moment here it makes me wonder again about you know just give you one more opportunity to to wax on just how deeply unified this stuff really is there's there's one paper that i don't know if you're familiar with this but i i think about this paper a lot it's by Michael Bank and Nicola Scafetta on scaling mirror symmetries and musical consonances among the distances of the planets of the solar system. And here we are back in that sort of Kepler and you know the music of the spheres kind of thinking where they're saying it turns out that the ratios of neighboring planetary pairs 
correspond to musical consonants as having frequency ratios of the major third, perfect fourth, perfect fifth, and minor sixth, that they do a statistical analysis of this and at p-value they get is, is less than one one thousandth. So they're saying it appears that these musical consonances are pleasing tones that harmoniously interrelate when sounded together, suggesting that the orbits of the planets of our solar system could form some kind of gravitationally optimized and coordinated structure. So we're talking about a completely separate set of of uh, constraints and forces generating these geometric relationships than what appeared to be governing the aesthetic principles by which people determine you know, experience a pleasurable music. And yet it's, it's showing up in these strangely well-tempered orbital periods and, and distances between the planets. And so, yeah, I'm just, just one more opportunity. I, you know, again, we are careful enough now in the 21st century, not to just slump into a kind of mystical fugue with this. Right. But uh, help me square the circle here, not to borrow too much from the language of alchemy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, so there's two ways that we could go. When I was at SFI a few weeks ago, we did a little exercise talking about sounds that were memorable for us. And I talked about when I was in college and I was hiking on the Appalachian Trail and it was summer. But the mosquitoes would find you while you were sleeping. And I remember, you know, that terrible sound of the mosquito while you're trying to fall asleep and it's in your ear. And then there were like six mosquitoes, you know, and they and they are making a little chord and sort of hearing their wings as this chord, right? This incredibly dissonant, evil chord and trying to huddle in my sleeping bag, even though it's July away from it. And my friend, David Bashwinner, who teaches at the University of New Mexico, he said, well, you know, when they're mating, they align, the male and female mosquitoes align their wings so that instead of like, instead of sort of weird notes, they they get to a consonance like that. Those These same ratios you're, you're hearing, in, you're talking about with the planets. So, you know, we could talk about the ways in which these music type relationships show up all over in other non-musical contexts or in bio, you know, mosquitoes are pretty simple biological organisms. The place that I would want to go with this is that I do believe, you know, both Leibniz and Thelonious Monk talk about music as a kind of unconscious mathematics. And I do believe that the pleasure we often get from music is recognizably a mathematical pleasure. It's a pleasure in hearing certain kinds of relationships, hearing a theme layered against itself, hearing consonances, hearing the transformation of a musical idea. And the thing is that there is this huge need for any musician, I don't care who you are, when you sit down at your instrument, you have to have some kind of guideline. You have to have some thought about where to put those fingers, right? Improvisation depends on this, but even pen and paper composition, if you want to get somewhere quickly, you got to be able to do that. And so for Bach and Beethoven, great improvising musicians, for Bill Evans, for Art Tatum, also great improvising musicians, for all of these people, theory plays this sort of essential and ineliminable role in helping to direct your imagination toward kind of potentially useful musical ideas. And so what I take the most pleasure in is the thought that we can actually distill some of these principles 
I guess I'm less interested in the planets and the mosquitoes and Bach than I'm interested in Bach and, you know, Art Tatum and the Beatles or I'm interested in that kind of deep grammar that links a lot of Western music, even though some of it uses drums and some is written in Pro Tools and some was improvised on a harpsichord. And what's really exciting is the thought that if we do our jobs right and pay enough attention to the fact that ultimately we're doing this thing for pleasure, we might be able to hit on some principles that are maybe not fully universal, but are widespread and useful enough to be close enough to universal that we won't complain and actually can contribute in a real way to the imagining of new musical possibilities. And so freeing ourselves a little bit, you know, I started by talking about intuitive knowledge. The problem with intuitive knowledge is it's often a matter of repeating formulas and idioms. So if we could get some general tools that were freed from idiom, that sort of laid bare the deep mathematics of musical communication, then that would be a way in which the scientific and the artistic could come together and help us imagine something truly new. Well, that's an inspiring place to end this. I mean, we're going to link to your Princeton website as well as you know, madmusicalscience.com so people can play with your interactive software. Again, a number of your talks and so on in the show notes. But is there anything else that you'd like to surface for people? Nope. I think that those two websites are great. And I really appreciate your doing this. It was a lot of fun. You know, there's a, we could do a whole other one, but I think people will enjoy what we talked about. Well, certainly it's been a pleasure for me to jam with you on these subjects. And uh, I hope that you have a, a wonderful day. Cool. I'm hoping to come out to Santa Fe more regularly. So maybe I'll see you around there. Uh, yeah. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.